Prado looking, throws it, alley, oh, he puts it down, he puts it down, it's over! Welcome in to the Just Basketball Show, your twice weekly look at all things NBA, WNBA, college basketball, the draft, all things hoops. I'm Chris Manning, that is Brendan Clean. If you haven't already, please follow us on your podcast app platform of choice and hit subscribe on the Just Basketball Fans YouTube channel. I want to tell you about one of our great partners as well. That is Thrive Fantasy. Thrive Fantasy is a player prop DFS platform where you can pick more or less than your favorite players on your on, on multiple sports, including the NBA and the NFL. Sign up today with our code Just Basketball, all one word, and Thrive will match your first deposit up to two hundred and fifty. Dollars. That's a great bonus. And if you're looking for some insight on what to pick, perhaps go to our TikTok page. And myself and our guy Colby are going to be doing picks for in-season tournament nights with our friends at Thrive. So check that out. And again, use our code Just Basketball to sign up and get your first deposit match up to two hundred and fifty bucks. Brendan. A lot going on today. Uh, later in the show, we're going to be talking about Tyrese Halliburton, the Indiana Pacers, and the Dallas Mavericks, as well as playing basketball speed dating with our friend Rob Mahoney uh, from The Ringer. Rob recently wrote a great piece about Tyrese and the Pacers that you can go read. We'll link that in the show notes below to give you some easy access for that. And it's a really great conversation with, uh, for me, Brendan, one of my favorite bass writers if not my favorite basketball writer so it was great to have rob on i didn't want to embarrass rob when we talked to him and i don't remember the name of the podcast which was also part of the reason that i didn't want to bring it up because it just would have made it awkward i love this thing but i don't know what it was called but he did a show for sports illustrated back open when floor. podcasts were not open floor. well no not open floor no open floor is the conversation it. show that they do that's awesome that you and i have like talked oh, about um, as a template the, and stuff the, the position he, by position thing Yes. Yeah. Okay. No Whatever exactly that show about. was called, yeah. he like broke down, basically took you inside the mind of individual basketball players and the decisions that they're making. If anybody can find that show and send me an episode, I would straight up listen to it now. Uh, and somebody should also just do an episode. The maybe the podcasting company that employs Rob Mahoney would be a good candidate to do that up, do that podcast up again because I think it was great and I think stuff like that is missing. So Rob took us inside his mind uh, and the mind of Tyrese Halliburton, and yeah, he was great. Have you read the uh, Chris Ballard book that's like the Thinking Fan's Guide to the NBA? That's like position mm-hmm. by position. But like, I, I want Similar. an update of that. I want an update. Yeah. Of, I want that now, Rob. Maybe we can get Rob a, a book deal. <laughs> there we go. We're just doing marketing now. Rob, I'll take 2%. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Brennan and I will split 2%. Well, it doesn't need to be a lot. We'll just a little, little nibble at the cheddar. But. We're also going to do uh, NBA prediction course correction. We're each going to have two to three predictions based on time that we feel worse about now that we're a little bit ways into the NBA season. But we have to start with the biggest news, I should say, in the NBA right now, and that's what's going on with Zach Levine. According to the first report of Shams Tarani at the Athletic, Casey Johnson uh, from NBC Sports Chicago has now kind of confirmed this as well. The Bulls and Levine are both open to Levine being traded. Uh, the Bulls are obviously in a very bizarre space start the year. You, they have, they're just not winning a lot of games. They're at a, a weird pressure point of the organization. Levine is would be the big domino, Brendan, to me that they're perhaps singling a rebuild here. And I think the place to start with this is just that the price for Levine is going to be really fascinating. He has four years, one hundred seventy million 
left on his contract. It's so three years and in, in change there. Player option in the final season. Here are the salary numbers he has, including what he's making this season. $40.06 million this year, $43 million next year, $45.999 uh, the year after that, which just basically $46 million. And then in 26-27, a player option year, his age 31 season, $48.9 million. A lot of money for Zach Levine, but a player, Brendan, that I think could have some value on the trade market. The question is this to me. It's a lot of money for a guy that has injury issues, and I don't think we think of as like a guaranteed all-star. You know, I don't think we think of as an All-NBA guy, but a good scoring basketball player. What is the price the Bulls need to actually move on from him and reset some things here and go on a new path? And what should another team realistically give? What is the middle ground there where maybe he can actually get dealt? And it also seems like, if you based on that reporting, that maybe it's not just going to be highest bidder. Is it going to be a little bit of he's getting to dictate where he goes a little bit, and then how does that impact the market? There's just so much we don't know yet, and a lot still to happen. But I, I think there's a lot to unpack about what his value and what his market's actually going to be as we're kind of speculating about it here. So I have actually a few teams that I like him on. I have one I love. One of our favorites, in fact. One of our planning the flag teams. Both of our waving the flag teams are going to be in my list of Mm. considerations. We'll talk about them both. But I want to go back in time a little bit first to just 18 months ago when two things happened. One is that Zach Levine underwent arthroscopic knee surgery on his left knee in May of last year, 2022. Coincidentally, by the surgeon who did the Aaron Rodgers Achilles surgery, who's getting a lot of attention right now, Uh, just kind of a funny name to see as I pulled up the ESPN article about that surgery. Um, Levine also, of course, had the surgery in 2017, the original ACL tear that he dealt with. And then less than two months later, Zach Levine returns to the Chicago Bulls for five years and $215 million. Now, one year of that contract is over. There's a player option at the end of it. I think he'll probably... Go ahead and uh, play off that player option would be my guess, Chris. I I don't think you're looking at he's going to decline $49 million. (laughs) The Chicago Bulls did not need to sign Zach Levine to that contract. And they it, it was a lot of money, a lot of years, and an aggressive commitment to what they had had been doing even at that time. This is not one of those where now that he's on the trade block or, you know, they've started the year, I think they're four and seven uh, this season that we're just going back and saying, you know, egg on your face. That's so embarrassing, awful decision, you know, in hindsight. It, no, it was, it was unnecessary and a mistake in that very moment. And I know this is nothing new about the Chicago Bulls, Mm -hmm. but it is just such a clear example, especially now that they are illustrating how much of a mistake it was in their own uh, minds of how much operating as as a sports owner, as an executive, from a position of paranoia and embarrassment and trying to avoid embarrassment is the number one surefire way to never win anything and alienate the living hell out of your fans. Like, the the, the concern for being a 25-win team in order to chase being a 35-win team is 
the worst possible thing you could do. This is exactly what we all became aware of with the treadmill of mediocrity thing. It's not that you can never have a mediocre season. It's that you can't lack direction. And the Bulls deciding to give a dude who was injured, who has never been a two-way player and who has had you know, a couple of, of, of great years, but, you know, is a flawed guy that much money at that point in time. It just, it, it, it locked them into exactly what we're seeing now. So I just wanted to say that because this was just, it, it's like a, a train in the night and it's coming at you and you just lay down on the tracks and wonder if what's going to happen. I think everything the Bulls are going through right now is really like a culmination, Brendan, of the decisions they've been making for almost a decade now, at least since 2016-17, right? The Jimmy Butler I mean, pretty trade. much since what? Derrick Rose tore his ACL, you could even say? I mean, yeah, the Jimmy Butler I, trade, of course. Sure. Yeah, the Butler the Butler trade is the big sliding doors moment, but there's another one in this, and it's it's an, it, it, they've had two decisions on Zach Levine contracts. One is obviously... Well, you said, and I agree with you, you didn't have to be the team that paid him this. I don't know if he was just going to get this elsewhere. I think, And I think teams, we're kind of in an era, Brandon, where it feels like teams are like a little scared of the optics of playing negotiation hardball. Like, I feel like we're just kind of in the era where like you just guys get their money and that that's maybe a conversation for another day. But I kind of feel like we're in an era where maybe teams should be okay sometimes like trying to get a better deal for themselves at times than just saying, Yeah, we hey. played this game before, right? Chicago yeah. was number the number one seed in the East up until about the trade deadline of that season prior to them giving him the contract. But you can't be married to that moment in time once the circumstances change. No, and you also just have to think about like the well-being of your team to, to build a roster. You can't just give out the money and just be like, oh, it's an optics. When you have to actually, th- there's, there's real cap space in roster building issues you give yourself and Zach Levine is getting over a quarter of your salary cap, right? That's that's just the reality. As talented as he is, there's limitations there. He's also someone that like, you know, in twenty eighteen they matched a they matched an offer sheet for with the Kings. With that a team. 80, yeah. With the team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the Sacramento Kings. That was eighty million dollars or twenty a year. I get why you just matched that. That's in, in today's money, that's like that's not that much. It's how far we've come. But like this Keldon is Johnson team. money. That's Kelvin Johnson money. That's Olympic gold medalist money, my guy. But we're in a world where you have to, I think, look at this and and wonder, okay, at some point they just had to, I think, pick a path to, I think, actually go through some pain. Maybe that was a moment. I think the contract is a moment. This feels like another one of those moments involving Levine where you should look, they have to maybe look at themselves in the mirror and say, it's time to, to do a full career. But if I were them, Brendan, if I'm the Bulls, it's time, I think, to actually pull the plug on this. It's time to go through some kind of rebuild here. I think it means Levine. I think it means getting as much as you can for Caruso, who I think is going to have a ton of value on the market and should command like real offers from teams trying to win titles this year. You know, may, We'll see about the Rosen's market in a different way. It doesn't seem like he's as on the market as of yet. But I think this is it's time for them to really look themselves in the mirror and say it's time to actually change what is going on here. I think I think they've had opportunities before and have held the path, as you've said. They've done that time after time after time and in so many different ways for a long time now. I think now's the time they actually have to look at a full-scale teardown and readjustment here to actually get somewhere new. That's what it feels like to me. Well, and the fact that it's Levine specifically whose name is coming up first yes. tells me that it, it it's inevitable that everybody will be considered. And if you read the kind of tea leaves of 
what people are putting out there on Twitter and everything else about the direction this might go, it seems like that's that's in the offing already. I, I think DeRozan is on an expiring contract. They needed to trade him. You know, we talked about that in the preview. Caruso, I think, is somebody who, like, I think you're talking about how many first-round picks could they potentially pry? <laughs> you know, if we're coming off of a trade deadline where Boyan Bogdanovich stayed in Detroit because the team wanted... Sorry, Bogdan Bogdan... No, no, Boyan. Boyan Bogdanovich Boyan, stayed in yeah. Detroit because the, the Pistons wanted two first-round picks for him. You know, Caruso on an $8 million, $9 million contract is... Partially guaranteed. stupid to not par- explore that. Partially guaranteed for next year, which is just like yeah, a glad they thing. glad they carved that out in case they didn't want Alex Caruso on their team. <laughs> so, yeah, look, if it's Levine coming up first, that means everybody's on... on available. I... Wonder in terms of the value that they might get back for Levine, Chris. How much better or worse do you think that Zach Levine is than Bradley Beal? Because I've always thought of them as somewhat similar in terms of now that Levine is on this contract, overpaid, kind of mostly one-way players that you're going to worry about on defense. But obviously, Beal probably better than him. So, how much worse is Levine than Beal to you? Five, ten, twenty percent? It's not. It's like five percent. It's not that much, and he's younger. He is younger. Like making yes, slightly making, less too. Making even though making it's a lot. Sli- making slightly less. He's a little bit younger. I think has an athleticism concern that I kind of feel like Beal might age in a really cool way that like I think Levine, what that looks like is more of a question to me just in terms of their style of play and, and what they're really good at. But Levine is is going to be in a situation where I think he can be like slot in as like a really well-paid third guy on a good team and you could be like, sure. Or like he's like the really well-paid older guy on, a, on an up-and-coming team hint in for one of our picks here for place I like to see him go that where it can make a ton of sense. I think it's about infrastructure from him. I think it's, there's some, there's some, it has to be the right fit. He's a very fit-dependent guy to me. But I think it's, I think there's a lot of of reason to be okay. Maybe you get him to a place that isn't Chicago, and things could just work out better for him. See, this is interesting. I think I think you might be a little higher on Levine than me, um, because I could be a th- I third guy on a great team, like on a good team. I think the answer is yes. That's where my head goes. I don't think I'm higher. I think on him than he. That. I think to your point on fit, it it's exactly that. I I think he could be the third best player on some championship caliber teams one of which is going to come up for me. But I think if you're saying, is he the third best player on like Philadelphia as an example of a team that I think is going, has already come up because people had circled Levine after the Harden trade as a guy they might want to pursue before Maxi blew up and their season started so well. Dallas, I don't, you know, so it depends on, on where, but sure. I think he could be, um, but for comparison's sake here, to return to the Beal comparison, the Suns got, or the, sorry, the Wizards got for sending Paul to, my goodness, for sending Beal to Phoenix, the Wizards got Chris Paul's salary, Landry Shamit's salary, he's playing, but he's mostly a salary, six second round picks and four first round pick swaps. 
So if we just call Chris Paul and Landry Shamit, well, Chris Paul wasn't salary. They flipped him for something. So however you want to value that all out, that's a pretty significant haul. If the Bulls got even 75% of that, I feel like they'd be pretty pleased. So how how much can they get? Because I do also think giving him that contract rather than maybe trading him at the 2022 deadline or something is part of why now you might get a little less for him. So what do you think they can get? It's this is the part I have the hardest time. And I'm I just will I I am bad at I think I am bad at fake trades. I want to just couch myself when I'm about to say that. Yeah, I don't think we need to build a whole fake trade out necessarily because that is messy. I, yeah, I I also just feel like I'm always like I feel like I'm either like way off on what the picks are ultimately be like I, I don't know. I, I look at just the, well, that's why I'm using the Beal thing. Is it how much less than that? If we agree he's a little worse, maybe we differ on how much, but pick swaps are a little hard to value, but is it a player better or worse than Chris Paul? Is it more draft capital or less draft capital than Washington got? Those are sort of, I think, where we can maybe go instead of trying to map it out. Here's what I would say. I think similar draft capital, like pretty much, I think that's the right ballpark. And I I think player-wise, I think that's where it could look different. If we're going to kind of look at destinations a little bit, and I kind of need to do that to kind of say what I'm going to say. I look at Orlando as a team that I really like a fit for him. Can, it's not going to be Anthony Black. It shouldn't be Anthony Black. But could they be the team that like rolls the dice on a Jalen Suggs re- rehabilitation? Are they a team that is like we'll take a di- we'll take a roll on Fultz for whatever reason? Like, is it Cole Anthony? Do they just say, like, hey, we'll take the scoring guy. He can get buckets for us. Whatever. Can they just get one of that caliber of young guy and some and just some draft capital and say, okay, we cleared our books. We're going to go in on youth. We're just clearing our deck here. Is that that to me is is kind of the path of what I'm looking for there? Yeah the the books and the length of the salaries is a, a huge part of this, and it was huge for why I think Washington was able to uh, get so much from from Phoenix. One, Phoenix was just desperate, but they needed to get off the Chris Paul thing. They needed to move on from Chris Paul in a way that helped their team rather than just having to cut him. And I think similarly, Washington wanted to clear long-term salary. So they weren't going to take back, I don't know where else Peel could have gone, like Duncan Robinson in Miami, right? They didn't. They wouldn't have wanted him or Tyler Hero to be returning. So that's part of why the Suns deal ultimately worked out, where Chris Paul, who was on an expiring and then ended up getting flipped, could, could be moved. So... Yeah, maybe a couple first-round picks and some big salaried players. I, I That feels like the ballpark of what we're talking about. Maybe some seconds in there as well is, is probably what Chicago's going to get. But that pretty much means everybody's in the game. You know, there's it, there's nobody really priced out there. I mean, maybe the, the Bucks yeah. or the Celtics or the Suns, who don't want him, probably couldn't pursue him. But the Clippers, you know, these teams who aren't going to make the trade... But everybody who wants him can probably get Zach Levine. So, yeah, let's focus on the Magic maybe because I think the question there is, is this the best use of your spending? Because I believe Franz is extension eligible after this year and his contract would kick in the 
summer, what, of 2026, which would be the last year of Levine's contract, it maps out well. You're spending on Levine now while Paolo and Franz age up. He would provide some structure and stability to your late-game offense where maybe he's not the only guy that gets to have the ball because I think Franz and Paolo have earned that, but he's certainly a better spacing option, if nothing else, than what they have. And you're rolling with some growing pains that are a little smaller. You pair him with Suggs or Fultz or whoever's left over there and uh, you know a, a switchable big defensive front line and maybe that insulates him a little bit better than Nikola Vucevic and you know Patrick Beverly playing the four we're doing in in Chicago. I don't hate that fit. I think it is more a matter of Orlando and it goes back to what we were talking about the other day when we talked about them uh, in our weekly check-in is do they feel like the time is now? But I think if you're looking for structure for Levine that's pretty damn good. Franz, it's a, it's a real testament to, I think, what we think of Franz as well, just because Franz would cover him so well as a creator. Franz could be the playmaker for others as much as we're enticed by his scoring potential and all that stuff. I think pairing him with someone like Franz to handle some of the playmaking burden, then maybe Anthony Black grows into a bigger role and all this stuff. And it's like, okay, like Zach Levine can just be the buckets guy. And that's like a You have to awful- feel good about Black, I think. Yes, to do, to do a tr- to do any trade for a, a scorer like Orlando needs to do, and you need to feel good about Anthony Black kind of right now because yes. if you're telling me that you know one of Fultz and Suggs goes out in that deal, or even a Gary Harris or a Joe Ingles go out goes out in that deal, it's suddenly it's like okay, well somebody has to still play, and we need a future plan here at the backcourt that isn't just Zach Levine. So yeah, it, it would be a big bet on on Black, I think. What are some other markets that you you like for Levine? Lakers. Yeah, I mean, I think that has to come up. I think they just they they need a little bit more juice. They they're always going to be star hunting. There's been the third star kind of like I know that some of the stuff was taken out of context from what was said, but I I think there's always just going to be speculation about them making that kind of move. I think finding that trade is a little. What exactly that trade is to me is interesting. I mean, is it just it's the one pick and then it's like Russell and matching salary, I guess, is is all you really need? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you throw a lot of seconds in there and try to get up to as close to whatever the bidding war value ends up mapping out to be. But yeah, it's it's Russell and probably Hachimura, you know, or yeah, I guess it it sort of has to be. And look, I'm looking at their future. The future unprotected first, probably. Maybe you could even protect it. I don't know. And then seconds. And and that kind of gets you where you need to be. There might need to be actually a little more salary that goes in, but Torian Prince or Hood Shafino, I mean, he's a first-round pick. Jared Vanderbilt. There's ways to get there. They is, have salaries. So, is, yeah, I is, think... Is sacrificing some of that forward depth worth it for Zach Levine, I guess, my question. Like, you're remaking your... If you're going to say, like, hey, Ruby, bye. Uh... Torian Prince, goodbye. Or Jared Vanderbilt, goodbye. And plus Russell. Is that worth the sacrifice for the Lakers? Like To me, that's like a very fair question because you're remaking what you are if you're going to do that. I personally think that it is, but I think Darvin Ham might not, but it's also not up to Darvin Ham. They want to be big and play defense first basketball, but I think their half-court offense, their shot creation is just not what it needs to be to win a championship. And so 
to me, D'Angelo Russell, going from him to Levine would be an improvement, and I think that would get them uh, in, more into the range. Uh, I also had the Kings, mm-hmm. which I alluded to. There's not an awesome trade here, which is sort of the problem. Um, Sacramento also already has Malik Monk and De'Aaron Fox. And so if you're telling me that you're now adding Levine into that also, I think it's a pretty big risk. It would probably be like Barnes and Herter to get there. It, it It's not great, but they've been interested in the past and they're not going to necessarily get a free agent. So, you know, a move like that, I think makes sense. I'll throw a couple more at you. Brooklyn, mm-hmm. for obvious reasons, the Ben Simmons contract potentially could be involved there. There's a lot of these teams where it's just who decides now is the time to pull the trigger. You know, the Lakers and the Nets, I think are both like that. We talked about it with Orlando from a different standpoint. Last one that I had was Charlotte. Yeah. For a very specific reason. I know that would be a lot of offense. I know that you have the Brandon Miller developmental block that you want. Maybe he goes to the three at long term and it's kind of LaMelo, Levine, Miller, PJ Washington, Mark Williams is maybe kind of your five core there. But for one specific reason, I think that makes sense. Gordon Hayward is on a $32 million expiring contract. The Charlotte Hornets are probably not going to be getting somebody great in free agency. And with new ownership, they might not try to the way that they did with Hayward or Rogier or some of these other players in the past. So if you want to kind of flip that salary down the line, turning Hayward plus one of your, you know, maybe one of your young players into Zach Levine, who then is on your books longer, provides you some insulation and stability, at the veteran kind of scoring spot, I could see that even if a Lamelo Levine backcourt makes me nervous defensively. Steve Clifford would have heart palpitations. I think like he would have health concerns again. Yeah. Two others for me: Sacramento. I just think you know maybe I said Sacramento. Oh, sorry. I just, I just blacked out for a second. Um, apparently I, my brain just right now is goop. So I like the Sacramento one. The other one that I think is worth just considering, but I don't know if I really like it once I thought about it, is the Miami Heat. Make the case. Better than Hero. Gives them a a bigger ball handler that I think they could ride in the playoffs. It's a star guy. It's a win-now piece for your Jimmy era. I think Jimmy and and Levine could really complement each other. Funny uh, how that goes, that they could work together. Shocker. Obviously, I know there's trades. They're they're traded for each other and all that stuff. But like, it's just funny that I think they there is some meshing there. It could help you eat innings. I think Levine is a guy that would probably benefit from getting into that kind of environment and, and raising his game. Um, and if you're looking at Miami and you're saying, okay, we want to make an improvement, but we also don't want to totally put all of our chips in in. When, if there's something else on the line we might want to do, this is a way to kind of get better, I think, and be aggressive now, but not – you still have some powder dry if you need to, like, in a year, like, call Cleveland and be like, hey, are you panicking about Donovan Mitchell? Well, how about Levine and for yeah. Mitchell or something like that? Like, you have flexibility even if you do this. I I get that part. I do agree that it keeps the powder dry. Miami is just, unfortunately, a wee bit cheap. Yes. And oh, so no if question. you're if you're making the case to Mickey Harrison, hey, we're going to pay the tax this year, and he goes, okay, great, for who? 
and then your answer is Zach Levine, I don't know if he signs off on that. But it definitely wouldn't cost as much as Mitchell or Beal or uh, Lillard would have, and it does still fill a need for them. I just think the theory of... And then you flip him is where I maybe run into some issues, and I think you maybe get stuck with you're paying a lot for Lillard or for Levine at the end of the yeah. day. And your, your team becomes very expensive for a guy who isn't probably really going to be the final definite answer for taking you to the next level. How do you feel about New Orleans as, as one last one? I don't like, I it don't really. really like it. I mean, it has to be McCollum probably. And I just think CJ is probably a more valuable player. Yeah, I agree. It would probably be Chicago trading for McCollum would be the better way to put that type of a package. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, uh, you know? Yeah. Uh, the other thing, I, the last thing I'll say here is I think I, I'm going to be proven right that Caruso is going to be the mo- could be the most impactful guy dealt at the deadline. Just based on, A, the early James Harden returns and, and be that Caruso is going to go somewhere and like make a team a lot better. Let's talk about the Clippers. Uh, circle back in January. Not Harden, but... <laughs> Yeah, some other trade possibilities on Paul that George, team. Kawhi Leonard, lots of things. All right, Brennan, it's time for NBA course correction. Here we're gonna look at some predictions we made. Um, we're gonna kind of rapid fire go through some ones we feel like we got wrong. I'll start. Uh, I yeah. want to put some respect on Tyrese Maxey's name because he has had. An amazing start to the year, I think, has really filled in pretty amazingly for what James Harden did for them last year. Just had a fifty burger. I, I think he has just been absolutely incredible for them. A big part of why that team is better than I expected them to be. They have not really taken the step back that I thought they might have. If I'm being honest, I was a little bit lower. I think on Philly than you by point of comparison, and I think Maxie's a big, big reason why. I think Nick Nurse is the reason why. But I have been blown away by Maxie so far this year. He is having a breakout year. Yet again, had that fifty burger. Philly's more than fine. Maxie looks really good, and I'm much more in on Philly than I was coming into the start of the year. So kudos to him. Kudos to Philly. I, I was wrong about him. This one bridges the gap between the two of us, I think, because I was singing the praises of Joel Embiid can lead a good regular season team and they won't miss Harden in the regular season as much as people think they could still be the three seed again and all that type of stuff. However, I vastly underestimated Tyrese Maxey as well. So this one works for both of us. I think right now the Tyrese Maxey, Joel Embiid, empty side pick and roll might be the most fun two-man action in basketball. I mean, partially that's the case because Jamal Murray is sidelined with a hamstring injury. So the, the Jokic Murray thing is, is not at full force, but it just feels like there's so many options on the table when those two are running a pick and roll right now that just weren't there with Harden because when you can get to the basket in the blink of an eye and you have the springiest, craziest step back three game, that is happening in the NBA like Tyrese Maxey does. It, it just opens up a world of possibilities. And, you know, Joel Embiid's making quicker decisions and, and they're just playing faster, more tempo basketball in the half court and in transition overall. It's It's been a lot of fun. So, yeah, both of us <clears throat> both of us get the L there. I want to go to the you, Oklahoma City Thunder. Just one oh. last Maxey thing. Did you see the, 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 the Sixers gave Maxey 50 Chick-fil-A nuggets to celebrate his 50-point game? Inspired by Giannis? Getting Chick Fil A the day after the title. 
All-time Instagram live, by the way, is Giannis going yeah. through the Chick-fil-A drive-thru. Like, really just a, a, a moment of pure. Could have used, Gian, like, Jokic watching horse races, but, we, you know, I don't think I don't think Jokic is an Instagram live guy. I don't know if they do Instagram out there. Just I, I think it exists. <laughs> what do you think I think they just, you- they just opt out. Brennan's They're just like, smarter so- than all of us. They just yeah. they don't want to yeah. deal with it. Sure. All right, what's your first one? Oklahoma City Thunder. Two things in particular that I got wrong in terms of the direction of the trajectories of two different players. Okay. I might have been out in front of my skis a wee bit on Jalen Williams. I'm coming at this from the standpoint of that he actually on Sunday night when I saw them scored 27 points on good efficiency. Did his his best SGA impression get into the midi pull-up and and just raining buckets on the undersized can't-score-in-the-fourth-quarter Phoenix Suns. But uh, I believe I had the take that Jalen Williams could be better than Shea. You I did. said that, right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know You're, if I'm at that point. Brennan, I, I'm I might need to be talked down, but I so, fucking love the Oklahoma City Thunder. Like I, this is not. I'm not wrong about the Thunder, and I'm not backing down on my love. I want to make that clear. I just yeah. have two players who I'm highlighting. But but ma- read me for filth. Make fun of me. I I went well, too far. So here's the thing. I'm a very Midwest like. I am not a confrontation on podcast person. Probably to the sake of lack of enjoyment. When you said when I, I distinctly have this moment in my head that I've never thought you were more fucking insane than when you were like. Jim I posed it as a question to be fair. I but let like, you go so, first, and then I was like, oh, I could see it. So I, I backed insane. off. I let you take the, the, the bullet. You're, it's fucking insane. It's fucking insane. Yeah. That, I, I, if Shea to- ever heard that, I mean, I'm sure he loves J-Dub very deeply, and they're they're yeah. growing together as friends and teammates, but he would probably, uh, you know, refuse yeah, like, to ever could, could you to be Could you be better than a first-team All-NBA, top-five MVP candidate guy? Like, is, yeah. Like... I just want to remind people uh, he's still, you know, in his early 20s. I, but, okay, so I, I, went, I went a little crazy. Also got wrong that I think when we talked about Oklahoma City, you're higher on Giddy than me for sure, but I also, yeah. I, I think the part that I was wrong on is that he was maybe hitting some sort of ceiling. First of all, that's unfair because he's so young and I probably should have just left more room open to you know things that are unforeseen i think with young players i sometimes i'm like this is what they are what can that turn into and i i forget like they can add new stuff we've never thought of before and that'll make us all change our mind but i highlighted it last week the two-man game with chet different things that he's been been able to do and the dynamic he's creating with shea so i was wrong that giddy is sort of stocked down or plateauing in some way shape or form so the thunder are where i thought they would be but the direction of each of those two guys, I was, I definitely missed on. I thunder. Our our sweet our sweet child. They they like systematically dismantled the Suns in the fourth quarter on Sunday, Chris. And I was just sitting there like, don't smile, don't be. You're not supposed to cheer in the press box, period. But you're certainly uh, not expected to do it for the road team who is spanking the favorite at home. <laughs> so uh, I. I had to try my best, but that team is the best thing in basketball. So this What's is a good transit. This is a good transition because the Thunder are part of the reason why I feel this way because they have absolutely. Once they came back from ten down, but then in Oklahoma City they just dismantled the team pretty impressively. Um, I just don't think the Cavs are as good as I thought they would be. Something feels off. 
something feels really weird here. They are not performing. They are not particularly sharp. They're getting. I think that their three point defense has been a real problem in a lot of different ways. I don't think Evan Mobley has taken the offensive step they've needed. Darius Garland is turning the ball over a lot more than you would expect out of someone um, who I think of highly as I think of Darius Garland. Mitchell's had some big moments. I think Struess has unlocked some things for them. There are positives, and they they've beaten the Warriors twice. But something just doesn't quite feel right. The numbers paint a picture of a team that just isn't very good right now. I, I thought Cleveland was going to come in and come in and pretty much just pick up where they left off the regular season last year. And this regular season would be a lot of incorporating Struess, incorporating Yang, evolving a little bit. Mobley takes a leap and they would be better off. And so far that just they've been pretty blah, if I'm being honest. What are the first coach fired odds for uh, JB? Well, so you say that, and I, I think that Brian Winhorst does like a regular appearance on ESPN Cleveland, and he's like, if they get the, if they're under five hundred twenty games, there's going to be warmth on his seat, and I'm like, okay, so like that's is that like perpetually that like, like they should call uh, this sounds like way meaner than I mean it to because I actually mean it as I feel bad for him. His nickname should be Hot Seat. Like this dude <laughs> has just gone through it in the NBA, and it does suck because he overperformed expectations last year but how quickly you said the they didn't before. pick up and yeah before. you said that they didn't pick up or they didn't yeah pick up where they left off from the regular season they kind of are picking up from where they left off in the playoffs in terms yeah. of just when odd vibes and strange types of mistakes and problems that feel fixable that can't seem to be when Paris um, is like your band-aid on a lot of things i think that means your season's in a weird position you know what one good thing that Cleveland has done recently, aside from beating the Warriors, hmm. they gave Mike Brown and Jordy Fernandez excellent tape for how to execute the Kings offense. <laughs> Just run it like this, guys. Future Cleveland Cavaliers get head coach that, Jordy Fernandez? Is that what Yeah, is? get that ball whirling. Let's get Kevin some shots. Let's get De'Aaron downhill. Let's get everybody above 20 points and just the, the warmest know, welcome save that file. Here's what, the, the last thing I'll say about this, because I, I think there's like an episode to be done on Mobley in, in that draft class. I keep saying this, but I think Cleve, there's like a when we're going to have a state of the East pod next week uh, with Brad Roland and Cleveland, I think I should come up in that conversation just as like a what the fuck is going on here. For a team that has like two really good guards, I don't understand how they're getting like mystified by traps as much as they are. If you watch them get trapped, it's like, what? Like, have you have, like, I don't understand the mistakes that are getting made on traps um what's your what's one more you have brennan uh quickly one that doesn't need to be talked about too much but i took the under on minnesota yeah and i just regret it because i was actually high on the wolves but yeah, i just felt like we, the number you're lo- yeah the internet's number one rudy gobert guy viva viva la gobert yeah the the number just felt high. I didn't believe that the offense could be good enough, but I didn't foresee the defense being this great. And we did talk about if Anthony Edwards just took sort of the leap, capital T, capital L, that this could turn around and, and just exceed expectations. So, you know, it. but I, can't, I don't know why I was optimistic about a team that took the under. That just feels stupid. Uh, I have one that's just young forward breakouts. Another player, not Jalen Williams. I don't think I hyped anybody up quite as much as I hyped him up nope. in the preview series. But Patrick Williams, I think... Uh, 
I still feel very solid about him, and I think if you're talking about a Chicago teardown, I would be really trying to get my hands on him if at all possible because his athleticism and defensive impact is just real. I mean, there's not any way around that, and if you can put him in a better environment, I think you could be good. But I had Patrick Williams and K.J. Martin, who I was just riding as breakout guys, and neither one of them has done much of anything. K.J. Martin's not even playing for the Sixers. Maybe that changes with Kelly Oubre. But the last real one that I have with Kelly Oubre, unfortunately hit by a car and dealing with that and i uh, covered kelly well, and love him very deeply as a human being so that need the, make, i didn't want to just gloss over all that i it is serious uh, look i mean the we just need to make this country safer for people walking and riding bikes and doing things not in car vehicles but that's welcome to the war on cars nba fans all right the last real one that i have is brandon miller hate yeah and this goes back to june yeah I, he's not killing it like i'm not gonna sit here and be like you know let's get the rookie of the year campaign started but he's had to to step in and start for them and their record's not great it's the it's the hornets you know they're they're pretending like nothing's going on with miles bridges and they are you know dealing with the annual one month in gordon hayward injury and they're three and six 27th net rating in the nba but brandon miller stepping in and just playing like he belongs shooting like 55 percent from two think he has like a two to one assist to turnover ratio those are all just indicators that if the point with him was sort of ready-made high level role player at least he's making good on that promise so maybe the laughing at, at charlotte and all that there's a million reasons to laugh at the charlotte hornets but that pick his talent you know i'm willing to take the l Last one for me, uh, again, tease for next week. I just think I undersold or undervalued what the Atlanta Hawks could be. Um, I think they are better than I thought. I think the numbers back it up. I think that offense is absolutely cooking. I think that team is absolutely cooking, and I think that team is a much more realistic threat for the for a better seed in the East than I expected, particularly with some of the struggles of other teams. But I think that team is just dynamic. I think Quinn Snyder is doing a bang-up job. I think Trey is playing really good basketball. I'm just really, really excited about the Atlanta Hawks at this point in time. So we all, you, me, and Brad, were unanimously correct on Jalen Johnson being probably the best forward between Bay, Hunter, and him. Mm-hmm. He's starting already. Bay is on the bench. They didn't extend Bay. Massive W for the Atlanta Hawks preview on the Just Basketball show. But you were pretty high on them, I thought. Uh, but like I, I just am now high. We all took the over. I'm just higher now. I'm just like, this offense is one of the best in the league and I thought it was going to be good and I love Quinn Snyder but I just think I'm not I think their ceiling's higher than I thought I think this team is I don't know if I just think this team may have jumped up above like some of the other teams in East like like I, I think right now if I'm looking at the East it's like I think Philly and Boston and the Bucks are still the teams in the, the day I think probably are going to be the top three who's to say Atlanta can't be like the fourth best team in the East at season's end Sure. third best team if it's the right matchup. Especially if Cleveland's trending down and the Knicks, you know, they're getting the bad Randall season after the good Randall season and, and all that stuff. I think it could happen. I Two things. I You're the need to see it, King. I'll be the prince for today. And I'll say I need to see the Trey operating at least in part off ball for more than a month. Because it happened yes. for about a month last year, even uh-huh. before Quinn got there. And it did not last. And 
the offense has another gear, and that's part of how they can get to it. But this was always going to come down to the defense. So I want to see where they end up there. And do they have a little more in them defensively? With Murray now, with Jalen Johnson, different personnel, can they reach another level defensively and actually, you know, in what, challenge Boston, Philly, or Milwaukee in, in a you know second, third round type of series? I think that it's not like the most crazy thing to imagine, but they're not there yet. We'll ask Brad Roland next week. Your last one that you just uncovered, Houston, is is the obvious one. But we talked about them a little bit, and I think it's going to continue. So we'll have more time to talk about the Rockets. Yeah, That's the one we were all wrong about. Every single person who cares about basketball got that one wrong. I also just went and checked myself after our last episode and watched some Singoon stuff and listened to some smart people talk about Singoon and, and watched some tape. and watched I'm like not a, smart enough? You have to double-check me with other people? Not wow. people, not people not as smart as you, but people I... Okay, I, yeah. okay. okay, got it. Yeah. Yeah, you're number one on my list, Brendan. You're number sure. one in my heart. You're my number one boy. By the way, real quick, before we get to Rob, uh, did you see the did you see this tweet from the streaming service Max with the courts? Did you see this? I I saw that people were feeling a type of way about it. We'll say, and I I just the rebrand has not been my personal favorite thing. I apps fine, great app, cool. I use it, but. I just, the, the cross-marketing is, it's fine when it's like a go-see-the-Marvels thing in the corner of VSPN Wednesday nights, but when it turns into, like, we're turning some of our characters into things about basketball because Charles Barkley and Harry Potter are owned by the same company, I just, I don't <laughs> love that. Uh, I personally just want to see, like, the Clippers and the Wizards playing the, the Kerber Enthusiasm Court. That just feels yeah, like the right matchup for the Curb Court. People would like them more than the in-season tournament courts, for being honest. Yeah, so, people are weird. People are weird, though. We live in a weird time. Did you see the we Sixers in a- in-season in tourney court? I did. It's another red one. It that's the that's the magic. If you're not the magic, not the Orlando Magic, they should not have a red court. But if you're wondering, can we fit red into our color scheme in any way, shape, or form? And you're in like an NBA marketing team, put some red in there. That'll make the court shine. That's the magic. That's the key. Um, if we have any the graphic Sixers, designers, Sixers, it's easy, but. if we have any graphic designers, listeners, or viewers out there, can we? I'd like to collaborate with you on a TikTok where we just review the courts and give me your thoughts on the. I think we things. missed our mark. That there was like a window there, like a yeah. month ago, where people were really getting in on that, and I think now it would just be played out. Unfortunately, well, I'm always next year. Behind. Next year, I'd like to. We're gonna book you now. Get it, you know, get to build up the chemistry. But then we'd like to do this mm-hmm. next year when we get like a whole other batch of in-season tournament courts. Good times. I just, they're <laughs> just, just that, 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 that. I don't have anything else on in season tournament courts, Chris. The Suns have a great one. I got to see it in person. Uh, there's been yeah. far too many uh, vocal cords fried complaining about an insignificant thing. So, uh, also, last thing, actually. Okay. I, I meant to bring this up at the beginning of the past two shows. We have established that Victor Wimanyama on this podcast is referred to as Vic. You uh, I went against text. that. And in a TikTok because that's just it's it's like vernacular. I have to be a man of the people, but on our show it's not that. Same thing here. In season tournament is not what what we will be calling it going forward. It is the NBA Cup. They're only calling the trophy the NBA Cup. I think in like official NBA uh, releases and marketing materials and stuff like that. We're gonna call the whole tournament the NBA Cup. Can we agree on that? Yeah, Tom Ziller, I think, does this in Good Morning It's Basketball, his yeah. really great newsletter. And it, that's also the dunked like on the, guys do it too. It's better. Yeah. That's also just like the soccer thing to do. Like if Adam Silver was really like taking a page from European soccer, it's like the FA Cup in England. 
they care about. We them. all know next year it's going to be like the Exxon Mobil Cup or something. So uh, look, Brendan, that's why a, it's that way. But we just <laughs> would like let's just jump in front of it. There's still a non-zero chance there's going to be a crypto sponsor, and that is the thing. It's going to be like the the, the NBA Cup brought to you by Coinbase. I'm going to be like, what? I mean, that's literally what the WNBA midseason tournament. Oh, final I'm a, aware. Sponsored uh, by, I, so, I, yes. I am fully aware, and I think about that more than I'm willing to admit. It, amid amid uh, a certain arena in Miami being uh, sponsored by a company that doesn't exist anymore because the guy is like a huge criminal. So, yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Anyway, not coming up next. Not a huge criminal. Rob Mahoney from The Ringer talking Tyrese Halliburton, the Dallas Mavericks, and his recent piece about Halliburton at The Ringer. Stay tuned and thanks for listening. All right, second half of the show today, we have Rob Mahoney from The Ringer. Just wrote an amazing piece about Tyrese Halliburton and the Indiana Pacers that we're going to talk about. But, Rob, we're going to start with basketball speed dating. Are you are you ready? All right, we you we we asked you ahead of time, did you want to you know the questions? You're like, nah, I want to go live. So how are you feeling as we about to embark on basketball speed dating here? More nervous now. You know, I feel like the, <laughs> the act of being asked, am I ready, makes me less ready. But we're here, so I think we have to do it. All right. Here we go. This is a game we play with first-time guests. Brennan and I played it as well. Uh, just a bunch of quick-hitting questions. First mm-hmm. question. First favorite player, Rob. Who's your first favorite basketball player? Uh, Nick Van Exel. I grew up I in Dallas. Yeah, I grew up in Dallas, and so the, the Nick Van Exel Mavericks area, era was very formative to me, very important. That's a good answer. That's I feel like the I feel like it is easier for people to answer this question. It was easy for me because Cleveland and it's just like, oh, LeBron. But if you're not in a market where you have an NBA team, I, I'm yeah. excited to get to at some point when we get someone who's from like 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 maybe he was born in Seattle, but like after the Sonics left or like it's from like Montana and they're like did the how deep we could get with some of these answers but it's like a little it's really at this point it's like if you do live in an nba city it's just match up time you grew up and right. fun playmaker who played for the team i think we're, <laughs> di- we're we're noticing a pattern here chris but that so doesn't make it any less fun to dive into the uh, time machine what you're saying is at some point in like the long future uh is that there's going to be someone we talked to from washington dc who's like i love jordan pool i'm gonna be like you're an absolute sicko you, oh my you, god you're wrong you're wrong I, for that i hadn't even considered that but you're right over a long enough timeline it's a matter of time. Rob, I was kind of wondering what you meant with the it. Seattle thing, because the timeline there is you're like looking for us to have like a 15 year old on the show soon, and that worried me. But <laughs> TikTok, maybe in the a few TikTok years, kids. the TikTok yeah. kids are out there. Look, I did see a person in Cleveland with a Jordan Poole Wizards jersey, and I have like should have talked to that. Well, maybe that person's like, gonna, "Why did you buy this for your like 14 year old son?" I have lots of questions. All right, I would keep uh, your te- distance from yeah. that person for now. You know, <laughs> They're just again, not it's, well. it's, yeah. it's one thing yeah. in the, deep into the future when that was their guy growing yeah. up, but in this moment in time. I would keep your yeah. distance respectfully from the Jordan Poole no. stands out there. Yeah, I think that's probably true. All right, first MB, first basketball jersey. I don't want to couch it just NBA, but first jersey. Uh, Penny Hardaway, Orlando Magic. Um, classic jersey. And look, I, I don't want to I don't want to name any names here, but I let a younger cousin of mine wear it. And given we're both children at the time, and this cousin was like a little too young to have full bladder control, and I was devastated when my younger cousin peed my Penny Hardaway jersey. Like, how do you ever bounce back from that? You don't. That's, <laughs> That's uh... the answer. My whole life stopped at that moment. <laughs> They're off the Christmas card. Was it black at least? Are we talking like unnoticeable stain or did it just go directly to the trash? It was the blue. It was the blue. So at least it wasn't uh... a white. 
but yeah. uh, look, I was not confident enough personally in cleaning technology at that point in time to continue. So sure. it, I, it <laughs> either got point. handed off or thrown away, but it was no longer in my possession. That's a good answer. All right. Team you're most sure got screwed out of a title. Uh, 2007 Suns, hip check, Nash hip check into the table. The NBA was just making up rules. Like, you're suspended because you took two steps off the bench, Amari Stoudemire. And I think this one comes to mind for me because it's like the long arc of human history was changed. Like, how how much faster would we have gotten to the Steph Curry Warriors if the if the like the seven seconds or less Suns won a title, right? Like there was there's a straight line of intellectual basketball development from those things. And then if we get the Warriors five years earlier, who knows? We'd have, we'd have flying cars by now. You know, I just I have that much faith. Brendan, that was your. If answer. it had worked, I think that was my answer. And yeah, I think that's a good call because if. You don't have Charles Barkley during the Warriors winning 73 games saying they can't win a championship if, like, 10 years prior they had won a championship, a team just like that, right? So I think that's a great call. Yeah, that's. I think that's, like, got to be objectively, like, the best answer of the last, like, 15, 20 years. I liked Vince Goodwill's with the Kings in in 2002. That's that's up there, you know, has to be. You got some some conspiracy to commit in the King's case, you know, like there's a there's an intricate web being woven. I, and I'm sure there's like 2006 Mavs are in that category, too. Like the, the officiating controversies of our era, I think, tie naturally into this question. But for me, the Suns one just has the biggest implications like that. That's one of the greatest what ifs in NBA history. 100 percent. All right. Player, you can't quit. Can't. In what sense? However you, whatever sense you want. My answer okay. was like, De- I, I think I answered like Dean Waiters for this. So like mm. you can take it however you want. It's just the guy who, for whatever reason, has, you have faith in. Maybe they retired and they never actually did it. We already know. Or it's some guy currently who you're waiting on. Mm. This one, I think, has multiple meanings based on this player's current circumstances. But for me, it is and has always been Ricky Rubio a guy who I fell in love with playing on YouTube mixtapes and then came into the Wolves. And it's like the charisma and infectious energy that he's always had for the game combined with, you know, like smart, intuitive defense. And and I think anyone who reads uh, the Tyrese Halliburton story I just wrote can probably tell pretty quickly, like a team's emotional balance means a lot to me. And Rubio has always been one of those guys who you talk to anyone on any team he's ever played for. And the way he lifts other people up and connects with other people is such like a deep and meaningful part of who he is. And that that guy happens to have a very flawed basketball skill set that makes him very easy to attack, makes me like a certain level of defensive for him. And that he's currently not playing in the NBA for some personal reasons as he deals with some mental, like uh, trying to improve his mental health. Like, how do you not root for that guy? Like I've, I've, I hope dearly and desperately we see him back in the NBA sooner than later, but I will always love Ricky Rubio playing basketball and defend the impact he can have on the game on top of everything else. Chris, I think Rob did get a hold of the questions because that was just a way to both of our hearts talking about Ricky <laughs> Rubio. He shared, you know, Cleveland now, Phoenix before. Wow, it's so true. I got to cover Ricky the year that he had that he and his wife had their first kid and that was very cool he is just a person that i think if you're around it's just clear like oh yeah this is why he galvanizes teams and this is why he kind of has fans all across every stop he's ever made in the league and i think chris he's brought you to his uh, altar the past couple years too yeah, he the Cavs also. If you watch them right now, they're missing a Ricky Rubio type presence. Now I don't know physically like where he's going to be at when he comes back because last year was rough, and I, yeah. I, 
him going for a triple double in that night in New Orleans had a, I think it could have a real ripple effect on his career you know in a way that is not good mm. but he would be a welcome presence I think for a, a Cavs team or any team that just like needs some stability and some good vibes in their life at, at this point in time all right jersey you wish you had framed in your office my answer for that by the way Rob was Ricky Rubio Spanish national team that's wow. the one I want I yeah. mean he is especially his presence within the context of that team like the Spanish national team in general uh very singular basketball product. Love watching those guys play. I mean, I'm a big Pau and Marcus All guy too, so uh, you're you're speaking my language. So it was Jersey. I would like Jersey. I like to have autographed in a frame. Could just anything could be autographed. Could be just in a frame. Who do you want? I'm not generally speaking a Jersey guy. Present tense. If so, if I were to have one, I would. It would need to have like some kind of extraneous significance to me. I'm thinking like. I'm thinking I might need one for the bit, like mm. a short-lived stint on a t- like a Rasheed Wallace Hawks jersey, you know, like that. That I, I could go for a, like a haul of, you know, your your Hakeem Raptors, your Pat your, like Pat Ewing Sonics, Gary Payton Celtics. Maybe that might be too long-lived. Actually, he's not not quite as ephemeral. But like I want that brief moment in time kind of captured. I think if I if I'm gonna buy something permanent and install it in my home. That's great. That's all right. Uh, favorite player archetype. We're gonna end here. Favorite. Who's your? What's your favorite kind of basketball player? Passing bigs. Passing. Well, passing bigs and post up guards. Which is to say, Mm. like, I just, I just want to invert all this shit. You know, like, let's, let's turn it upside down. Let's see what defenses do. Uh, And at least in half of that equation. This era of basketball is really suiting me. You know, this is this is really the time of the passing big, if not necessarily the post-up guard. But you still see some guards go down there on the block and, and make some plays. And you have some, you know, some Jaime Jaquez types coming into the league now who are at least like bigger wings who are doing it. Um, so it's, it's it's Rob season is what I'm getting at. And uh, so long as Nikola Jokic in particular keeps slinging passes around, I'm, I'm in heaven out here. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that answer might be common now, but you fully own the like origin story of how that became popular. You've been doing this long enough that you're allowed to claim it. If we did bring Chris's uh, 15-year-old Seattleite on the show someday and they yeah. said that, I would just stop them in their tracks and make them pick something different. But but you deserve it, Rob. I appreciate that. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Like that's It's crazy to think that that's going to be the world that a lot of basketball fans grew up in, where that's just normal, right? Seven-footers, guys who are 6'10 and above, playing that way. Playing like Joel, for that matter. Playing like Giannis. Like That's just going to be the baseline. Versus, I think, for, for us, for a lot of other people, it was either heavy post-up bigs, like full-on Shaquille O'Neal era of the NBA, mm-hmm. or extremely pick and roll heavy guard dominated you know early to mid 2000s and i i can't wait to see what future basketball generations come up with on how to iterate on on this because this already seems pretty advanced pretty sophisticated pretty modern to me so i i can't wait to see where we go yeah i feel like we're in the pat the skinny big passing era like all mm-hmm. these bigs are like really lean like not super bulky but passing and then there's yoka who's like stuck between it's just like what if i'm also thick as hell and no one cares <laughs> we respect we it be, we respect all right rob you wrote about tyrese halliburton for the ringer people will link this people should go read it if they haven't already here's the here's what i want to start with okay tyrese halliburton it gave you this quote that i found i think exemplifies i think what makes him an amazing player quote i play a style of basketball that people want to play he 
to me is at this at the forefront he may be not number one but at the forefront among the forefront of these creators these young guards that are shaping the league right now in a lot of ways what do you when you talk to him when you watch him when you decided you wanted to write this what most pops about the way he has decided he wants to play basketball particularly since he's gotten indiana and been the, the forefront of that organization yeah i think the key thing is the way you know i think a lot of point guards are unselfish I think some of them are pretty selfish too. You know, like I think you could play that position in a variety of different ways. I think you could play it in ways where you score a lot, but your teammates love you for that because you're playing it in a very pure way. You're doing the best in terms of the way that you understand the game and how to approach it, how you walk through the world. They see an authenticity in that. I think other Pacers players and other players from USA Basketball, I'm sure, would feel this way too after Tyrese played there this summer. They see an authenticity in the way he wants to get other guys involved and specifically like the kick ahead pass stuff that I talk about in the article in terms of a point guard who not only wants to play fast and wants to run, but wants to give up the ball as quickly as humanly possible before he does it. And it's just so counter, it runs so counter to I think a lot of the way point guards instinctively believe the basketball should be played or believe that they can have the greatest impact on it. And so the fact that he is wired to do specifically that and wants to do specifically that I think is incredibly endearing to the people he plays with because it empowers them to do stuff like they get to be creative they get to to flex in ways that even if you play with a great playmaker you know a, a Luka Doncic a, a prime James Harden a, a, you know Russell Westbrook winning an MVP those guys just are, are on a completely different speed and style and philosophy and I think what Tyrese does and what makes him so, so special is that ability to tap into what it is that makes you special and he can bring that out really effectively. So you were able to get details on what I think a lot of basketball fans might notice turning on a lot of teams. I mean, Chris mentioned it's sort of a, a little bit of a generation at this point, if you want to include LaMelo Ball or, I mean, whoever these big guard playmakers are that are dominating the NBA right now. But what you got detail on is how you build structure into free-flowing. Mm -hmm. And I liked the term pace after that you got from Rick Carlisle, which I think is just sort of helping me understand how do you like actually turn what makes these types of players great and what I think maybe Halliburton might be the best out of all of them into like an actual winning basketball philosophy and not just this fun thing all these young guys are doing. So right. whether it's a key thing in the story to draw attention to or something maybe that didn't make it or whatever, what did you feel like you came away knowing about that process that you didn't before? It's a great question. I think a lot of teams go through this. A lot of young players, like you mentioned LaMelo, he is case in point, right? The tension between order and chaos from freedom and control is really where a lot of the NBA sits. And the more talented a player is, the harder those decisions become. Because the idea of micromanaging someone who sees the game like Tyrese Halliburton does is ridiculous, right? Like he's gonna see things in the moment and be able to actualize plays that you could never draw up. And I think that's that's really the beauty of what, like the line Indiana is trying to walk and the line that all these coaches walk. Like, I'm sympathetic to their circumstances because I can imagine when LaMelo pulls up for a 32 footer or throws a pass into the second row, there's a part of you as a coach that wants to rein that in. And if you do, I think you lose some of what makes those guys so so unique and so powerful. 
And so to do it like the Pacers have, which is to say, as you mentioned, like the pace after kind of offense, I think is a very elegant balancing of those priorities. You're not taking away the transition play. In fact, you're prioritizing it, you're practicing it, you're emphasizing it. But when you do get into the half court, you're flowing into concepts. You're flowing into, a, like, it's it's not necessarily drawn up sets every time down the floor. I think Rick Carlisle said, like, ideally or optimally, he's calling, like, you know, f- maybe five plays a game, um, give or take some wow. sideline out of bounds stuff, you know, some, and, you know, after timeout kind of stuff. Like, he does not want that level of control anymore. And that in itself is a level of growth as a coach. Like Carlisle came up being adored, revered, even among players for the stuff he would draw up. And so to, to be able to take that backseat as a coach, it's like, this is what I do well, but it's not where basketball is anymore. I think it, it requires certainly a level of self-awareness, but also like a, a humbling of yourself before the team. And that's kind of what across the Pacers you can see right now. And it's easy to do that right now when things are, the vibes are great, the team is rising. Most players are, are feeling pretty secure in their contracts, give or take, uh, you know, a buddy healed here and there or something like that. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, this is a team that is all pulling in the same direction. And the longer you can maintain that, that's the special sauce that, that makes great teams great or, or good teams ascendant. The the Carlisle Halbert partnership, too, is really interesting to me because it's it's not a new thing with Carlisle that he can be. I don't know the right word exactly, but let's say difficult to be work with for certain points. He has guys he likes and guys he doesn't like. He's very Certainly. black and white in that regard. What what do you think it is about Halliburton that has made him and Carlisle such a dynamic, workable, trusting pairing as a coach and, and player on the floor? I think some of it is the magic of Tyrese. I think genuinely that guy could win over a statue. Like I, I dare any human being to come in contact with him and not come away liking something about him and so i think part of that you know as grumpy as rick carlisle could ever be it it can thaw a guy like that but yeah you're right that carlisle has always he's he's always picked favorites for sure you can see it in his you know it's not a mystery go back through his rotation see who he does and does not play you can tell pretty quickly who is a rick carlisle guy and who is not so between like that personality that halliburton has the style of play and how much it fits kind of where Rick is now, like philosophically speaking, and how he sees the game. Those things blend together so easily. And to have a player who's not only those two things, but massively, massively talented, like that's that's a winning combination, I think, for, for a lot of coach-player relationships. This year so far, I think we've seen it doesn't necessarily show up in the stats. I was digging back through as I was getting ready to ask this, and maybe you can't quite tell it in terms of where his shots are coming from or even how much he's getting to the line or some of those indicators, Rob. But I think it feels to me that he is broadening what he can do as when he's in pure score mode, late in games, late yeah. in the clock, when the team needs a bucket. It's not just in space pull up threes that type of thing it is a little bit you know more inside the arc a little bit more around the basket a little bit less predictable um so that excites me because it means you can do more around him and of course it was expected he's still only about to be 24 years old but what would you do to build around a guy like that what do you feel like they're gonna do to build a guy like that around a guy like that you emphasize kind of Toppin and walker quite a bit in your piece and you know if they hit that's great but you know buddy Hield, miles turner those guys might not be on the title winning version of the indiana pacers so what do you see kind of down the line for the roster yeah i think you know halliburton is clearly key there 
Ben Matherin is a guy they have a lot of faith in and have invested a lot in. Right now, he is a powerful driver who can get quite tunnel vision sometimes. I think you know he tries his best, and some some games he's more passing oriented than others. But what they envision for Matherin is a guy who can get downhill in a way that Tyrese can't always. Halliburton, for all his strengths, not an explosive athlete. So the idea that he's getting, you know, Halliburton's getting more to, to threes and maybe floaters and pull-up jumpers, you need Matherin who can get to the rim, can get to the line as kind of a counterpunch to that. So if Matherin continues to develop, and especially continues to develop defensively in a way that complements Tyrese too, I think there's hope that they can work out as a long-term backcourt. But beyond that, like, it's it's obvious anytime you watch the Pacers how much how badly and how much this team needs defense and needs interior size. So whether that's at yeah. the four or at the five, whether as you're alluding to, like is Miles a part of that? Miles Turner is he a part of that or not? I don't know. For now, he is. But I mean, the the dream pairings as stars are guys who are very hard to get, right? It's at the high high end. I mean, look, you would love to pair Tyrese with with a Giannis or someone like that. Moving down the you know the pecking order a little bit of the league, you know, a Jaron Jackson Jr. I think could be an exceptional fit next to Tyrese, right? You need someone who's big mm. and who's athletic and who guards yeah. and rebounds well. Like Jaron, I think Jaron Jackson Jr. is proof that like sometimes you only get three of those four things. And this is the problem the Pacers are bumping up against and that they're very frank about is like, sometimes when you choose players who play the way that they play and that Tyrese plays, you're sacrificing defense. You're sacrificing rebound. There just aren't a ton of guys who can do all those things at once. And so I think whatever star they get might have to tilt a little bit more towards the defense rebounding into that player spectrum than the runs and shoots well into that spectrum. And, and they're gonna have to walk that balance too. The, the part of the the last thing I one of the last things I think we need to handle with this is just it was in the story that like Obi Toppin was like okay can I get to Indiana there's talk of Halliburton in that story talking about wanting to bring guys to Indiana that has yeah. historically not been the easiest thing to do nope not at all so I wonder what their path will be is it being a there's gonna I think you need to be something different than I guess what we've seen from the, how the Pacers got here in the first place there it's hard to you can't look at the Halliburton trade let's say and say let's just replicate that again and get a really good value for a center that's just probably not going to happen again drafting you're probably not with because of how good he is because you have Carlisle because you have these other guys you're probably not going to be bad enough to get a really good young player and then extend your window a little bit even even in that regard so how they do this I guess to me is is now the big question you could look at the shot making you could look at just internal development but how they add pieces to me Rob and yeah whether, whether like that to me is going to be the, the big thing I watch is what kind of pieces they target and how all in they go on on certain things I think Indiana, especially in this these kind of like recent, the recent history of the Indiana Pacers, right? Whether you're talking about the Paul George, Roy Hibbert era, or kind of getting into the Victor Oladipo, Domana Sabonis eras of the Pacers, those teams and, and the, the t people managing them were fairly realistic about that idea of like, we are not gonna get premier free agents to come to Indiana. And they made their peace with that and they prioritized trades as a result. And they've been, I think, fairly, by NBA standards, fairly aggressive in turning those teams over, right? Like they did parlay George into Oladipo and Sabonis, and now they have parlayed Sabonis into Halliburton in a way that other teams don't necessarily have that kind of long, a, a like a, a tail on, on one star move, right? They, they've been able to parlay those things into, into meaningful renovations. I think where the shifting is occurring is they're still saying, okay, as a market, we are not a draw. Therefore, our most compelling options to get hyper-talented players are either through the draft or trades. But the thing that they were missing and the thing that they believe they now have 
is the compulsion to make other players around the league want that trade, right? They traded for Tyrese Halliburton. Tyrese Halliburton didn't know he was getting traded. He never he never asked to go to Indiana. He never handpicked it. It was just like a deal that made sense for those two general managers, right? Like it made sense to them, and so it happened. The other kinds of trades we see in the NBA all the time are, I want to go to that team. And sometimes those called shots work, and sometimes they don't, as we saw in Damian Lillard's case. But I think when you have that impetus of getting more players on the market who would want to come play with you, that's what they're hoping that they have. And that's, we, we may have to wait a year or two to see if that's the case, but between the resources they have to make those trades and the cap space that they're gonna have available, I, it, I, I, I wonder if we might see it sooner than later, to be honest. All right, I think we have to talk about the Dallas Mavericks. We have you here. You mentioned Nick Van Exel and your uh, your roots. I think a lot of people have been surprised and impressed by Dallas this year, Robin. Understandably, you know, Kyrie finally kind of getting the ball into the basket a little more even lately, and Kyrie or Luca looking like an MVP, you know, version of himself, maybe even a little better than he has in the past. Chris and I talked about his three-point shot going in at a really high rate this year and how much that's been driving his success, but Personally, the thing I've been most excited by about them and maybe what's different this year, because, you know, they're very good on offense, very not great on defense still, even though the win loss looks better. I don't know how different they might ultimately be, but they're playing the young guys and still winning. Yeah. And I feel like you can try to have a version of the conversation that doesn't confront the reality of Luca's future, or we can just maybe address that head on and say that that's underlying a lot of what's happening here. And so I'm excited by the prospect of them showing Luca, but also having these young guys be able to prove it to everybody in this organization that it doesn't have to be one or the other. So I don't know if there's one guy that stood out to you or a structural thing about how they've played with those dudes that uh, excites you, but what have you made of that dynamic in Dallas so far this year? Yeah, I think it's less a, a singular guy because, you know, they really don't have the young blue chip star kind of prospect coming up the ranks. It's more about kind of the distribution of that responsibility and the way all those guys collectively are kind of lifting up the map. So I think the most important data point is the contrast between the team that got the maps to the Western Conference Finals two years ago. That team, if you're being totally honest with everyone involved, it, like, it, it hit its ceiling. Right? Like that is a team that overachieved based on the talent level that they had. And those are, that's a, always a really hard conversation for teams to have. Uh, coming Rob, you were in the place. building for Game 7, right? <laughs> I was in the building for Game 7. I thought I remembered seeing you there, and I did not say hi because I had not been introduced to you yet. Maybe I should have. would have uh, made the basketball speed dating even more intimate. Oh, but, sure. Um, yeah, that was awful. Anyway, I just, you know, taken back. You're, you're bringing me there. So I just recalled that you were actually in the building as well. It's just, it's a trauma we all share, whoever was happening to be in uh, Phoenix that, that, uh, that fateful night. I mean, it was, a, it was a basketball court turned into a crater. That is for sure. Like something nuclear happened there. And I don't know that that thing can be replicated, especially with yeah. those players at the state they are now. Like Maxi Kaliba, for example, crucial member of that team. Now just kind of a guy after some, you know, a string of injuries for the Mavericks. And what they have done to replace a Maxi Kleba, a Dorian Finney-Smith, who went out in the Kyrie Irving trade, as you've alluded to, is plug in young, dynamic, athletic players. The idea a couple years ago that you would look at the Mavericks against a, an average opponent and say they have the most athleticism on the floor would have been a mind-blowing kind of concept, 
This is a team that has played veterans around Luka, that has played just kind of like the best role, you know, role players they could hodgepodge together. Like it, it hasn't necessarily been the most inspiring athletic mix, but now you have Derek Lively, you have Derek Jones Jr. on the wing, you have Josh Green, like you have a lot of length and burst and pop that when you also have one of the best playmakers and scorers in the sport, like those things are just, they're, they're just taken so much further than they used to. And so I think we've seen the Mavs transform in all of this from going from a team where Luca can take it to hit its ceiling and get you to a Western Conference final to a team that, for being honest, the floor might be lower. The floor might be uh, Kyrie Irving decides, like, decides to weigh in on what's happening in Gaza and things so, like side spin and who knows what could happen from there. Um, <sighs> Who knows? Like, I, I think that's the, ultimately like the, the floor could be very low for the Mavericks in certain disastrous circumstances, but their ceiling is so, so much higher. And that's the more powerful thing when your superstar is a young guy who's going to have some contract pressure, who's going to be able to, to pick and choose where he wants to play for his entire career. The Kyrie part of this to me is just like the thing I'm waiting on because I think Lucas played at an insane level this year. He has to, I think it's way too early to say to use a certain three-word uh, acronym for an award, but like he's in that discussion, I think, based on how he's played. I love how they've empowered the young guys. I think there's something to be learned from just saying, okay, like we have young guys, and they could probably go even harder on it by like giving Omax more minutes and, and some different things. But Kyrie feels like this thing where it's both you look at his numbers and you look at what he's been historically, and you think he probably can be better than this. And also, Rob, what you said and what your boss at The Ringer, I think, is probably most known in the internet for saying about Curry is that... Uh, you're just waiting for him to say something incredibly stupid. And like, where does, what is the balance there? And that, and there is a real bet there. And I, I am perpetually fascinated just to see how that works out. And cause it will have, I, I, I don't think we know what Luca thinks about that part of it to some degree, but he has yeah. to have an opinion. He has to have an opinion somewhere about that. And I'm sure if it's a bad one, we'll probably learn about it in, in some way, shape or form. I mean, I think players are willing to swallow and accept a lot if it means that they can get other things they want whether that's a huge contract, whether that's like performing and playing at a high level where you're featured, or whether that means like winning a title or advancing deep in the playoffs. And so I think Luca's opinions on Kyrie are very much contingent on if the Mavericks are good enough to paper all that over. Uh, and so far, they've, they've certainly played at that level. They've, they've performed as well as any like non-Nuggets, non-Timberwolves team maybe in the Western Conference right now, which I don't think a lot of people were necessarily expecting. I think I think a lot of people were, were penciling in, you know, some growing pains, especially for these younger guys, figuring things out, a lot of new pieces. Like there's just a lot of turnover and potential for complicated circumstances there. But so far, a lot of those things have worked about as seamlessly as they could. And we know we know the NBA well enough to know that doesn't always last, but at least that's the case for now. One quick stat on Kyrie that I think is pretty impressive so yep. far this year. 54 assists to just 15 turnovers. And even though he wasn't making shots early on, he was, you could tell, he was emphasizing sharing the ball. And, and you know, the basketball fluctuates his style, his effectiveness, whatever, just as much as the off-court stuff can. It's, it's not always just been an off-court thing with him, but that was nice to see and continues to be that way. Question for you, Rob, to close us out here quick is... Yeah. Do you see hope for the defense? How how can they get back to what they were in 2021-22? Because even if they're not going to maybe be a conference finals team with a very similar roster, 
they were a good 82 game defense and a pretty good playoff defense that season with also similar personnel. Uh, do you see hope there or is it just that that year was the fluke? I don't know that that was the fluke so much as it was a like a perfect moment in time, if that makes sense, right? It's a lot of players, as I said, like kind of hitting their their full defensive stride in a way that could triangulate a team defense. They don't have a natural like defensive anchor type on this team. And so anything they do is going to have to be collective. Anything they do is going to have to balance between a few interested parties. They feel a little thin even in that regard for me to feel fully confident in their defense. So I think their best avenues, you know, like flash forward to the playoffs, they're playing the best defense, better than we ever could have anticipated. What went right, I would say it would have to be Derek Lively just goes through the roof over the course of the year in terms of his ability to execute NBA playoff caliber defense. And he's already quite precocious, right? Like already makes and reads makes reads at a really high level and consistent level for a player his age. If he kind of jumps that developmental curve over the course of the year, that could help. But other than that, like a lot of their guys, even the good defenders are a little erratic, are a little aggressive, are, you know, are kind of, you know, Josh Green, for example, is more of like a chaos agent defensively than he is anybody's idea of like a go-to stopper. So it's going to be tough in that regard. But I think there is, I think there's enough collective ability and collective feel on this team now that they can kind of fake it through a lot of matchups. And sometimes in the NBA, that's all it takes. Like if you have an elite offense that executes at that level that you need it to, you can you can get away with a lot. Chris, teams are shooting 71% at the rim against Dallas this Oof. year. And uh, that, that scares me. And they're not as big as they used to be. I think I might have glossed over a little bit saying the personnel is similar because they're Bullock and Dorian, Dorian Finney-Smith were huge for that group. And yeah. to not have big wings like that who can just make life hell for a Devin Booker is, is a big difference. Even their young guys who are performing well are more guards than wings. So it is different. I, I wonder if they can figure it out. That is where I wonder if there's like a just a breakout for Omax somewhere in here just to maybe he plays above his head a little bit. Maybe he just gets the chance. Um, and I would also just say the last thing about this is I'm I'm still somewhat of a Jason Skid, Jason Kidd head coach skeptic. I just sure. don't know if I fully am sure that is the, the right guy pulling the strings. He knows more basketball than like I will ever know, obviously. But there's something about him as a coach that leaves me wanting i don't feel like when you look at like atlanta as like a point of comparison i look at quinn center and it's like that guy is adding wins to that basketball team or sure. is is jason kidd additive for what is going on there is like a real throw your hands up and and maybe that maybe that doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things based on where this team is at but it's on my mind you can find rob mahoney at the ringer listen on the ringer nba show go read his piece about tyrese halliburton and read everything you write. you'll be a smarter basketball fan for it. rob thanks so much for coming on i hey, appreciate you guys thank you